All right, let's get started with some prayer, guys. Father God, we praise and we worship you. We just focus our minds now on you. Lord, there's so many things to, to know and to study and to try to understand, and it seems like the world changes faster than um, we can keep up with it sometimes. But Lord, your truth stands firm. It doesn't change. We pray, Father, that you would help us to um, know the right answers when we talk to people. As we encounter so many different truth claims, so many different false religions throughout the world, help us to know the right answer, the right questions to ask and the right answers to give and um, to guide people out of those false beliefs and into a true understanding of who you are and a true understanding of Jesus so that they might enter into relationship with you. Lord, we are all, all imperfect. We all have sin in our life that we're still struggling with all the time. And sometimes we don't feel like we're the most qualified people to talk to others because we are so messed up ourselves. But, Father, you're growing us in grace, and I pray that you would continue that work, continue to mold us into the shape of Jesus, renew our minds with your word, and help us now as we study that we would gain some insight or gain some knowledge or even just some courage or expectation as we encounter other religions, Lord, to be able to you know, preach the gospel to them in such a way that it'll be effective. That's all we desire is to be effective tools in the hands of the master. And I pray, Father, that you use us mightily in whatever way to bring you glory. Thank you again for the good things you've given us, and I pray now that you would help us to focus. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about world religions today, and one of the things that always kind of overwhelms me when we think about how many belief systems there are is just that, that balance you have to strike between, you know, do I need to know everything to the nth degree of what this person believes in order to effectively communicate to them? Or the other hand of it, which I, I agree with too, because there's some people that say yes, and then there's other people that say, well, no, you just really need to know the gospel really, really well, because then you'll be able to counter their truth claims with your own, and the Lord will use that uh, effectively. And, you know, there's, there's truth to both of those. I mean, there's a sense in which evangelists go to tribes in the middle of nowhere, and they don't know anything about that culture, right? And they are able to preach the gospel. But, in the same hand, they have to spend years being there and trying to learn about that culture and the, the most effective ways to communicate to these tribes in order to effectively preach the gospel. So it's a little bit of both. And trying to find that balance is difficult, but um, I'm hoping that at the end of this, we'll have a, at least an idea of where I came down as I was studying this week on how I, how I balance that. But when we're talking about world religions, you, you know, you have a breakdown. I don't know how effective this is, this is or how, uh, how recent this is. This was taken from 2007, CIA. And it says that uh, Christians make up 33% of all religion, but that is broken between 17% Catholic 6% Protestant, and then a mixture of Orthodox and Anglicans after that. So if we think about evangelical Christians, we're only 6% of the world population. And then Roman Catholics are actually the biggest Christian group, the one that we're contending with. You know, there is a sense in which I want to preface this with saying that I believe that there are Roman Catholics that are saved, but not not the clergy, if that makes sense. Like people in the church, they love Jesus. That's just what they've grown up. And if you, ask, if you talk to them, they'll tell you, oh, I'm saved by, by uh, grace and by faith and not by works. 
and you're like, but you're a Catholic, and it's very odd. But that said, um, out of that, there are so much people that are works righteous, Roman Catholics, that when you talk to them, especially if you do any evangelism, and they say they're Catholic, you ask them, how do you get to heaven? I'm a good person. Right there, you know that they don't understand the gospel, right? Uh, that's the problem with nominal uh, religions, which the next one is like that. Muslims are 21%. And that's a, that's a religion that has some very strong adherents, uh, I would say like Jewish people or like Christians, but at the same time, you have a lot of nominalism, which means that you're growing up and you're raised in the faith, right? You grow up in a Muslim country, you're going to be Muslim. It's just the way it is. Same thing with uh, a lot of Roman Catholic places, or even in England, you know, you're technically Anglican because it's the Church of England. Hindus are 13%. Buddhists are 6%. Other religions, you know, a scattering are like 11% in total, but they're just so small, they're below 6%. Jews are actually only about 02 of a percent in the world. So very, very small. Uh, Sikhs and then atheists. This list actually has atheists at 2% of the world population. Uh, it seems higher. We, I was talking to Brother Matthew. It seems like a lot higher than that, but it's according to the CIA. Back in tw- but that's 2007, so this is a while back, right? This is a, an old statistic. It's hard to find updated statistics because it seems like it, the definitions change or they're just not as interested in knowing what the, the makeup is. We have a lot of stats for the United States. That's something that we've kept up with, like the, the makeup of the United States, but not, um, not, other, not the whole world. So if we're looking at these statistics and we're thinking back to um, you know, all of these different religions that, that we have to contend with, we can see very clearly the people that we should kind of be focusing on, if I can put it that way, right? the people you have a, uh, a higher chance of interacting with. But although that's true in aggregate, I was thinking about this when I was um, learning a language. I wanted to learn uh, Japanese just because I like Japanese culture and it'd be interesting. But I stopped and uh, one of my friends at work said, well, why'd you stop? And I'm like, well, if you think about it, who am I going to talk to in Japanese in Las Vegas, right? Like, yeah, there's a lot of Japanese people in the world, but you think about it, you're going to speak Spanish more often or you know, Chinese probably, right? So I should probably learn one of those languages. And even then, Spanish is still more, even though there's more Chinese people in the world in total, I'm probably going to interact with more people that speak Spanish. So I should probably pick that. In the same way, we, we're, we're trying to like say, okay, who are you more likely to run into in the United States, even though, say, there's a lot of Hindus in the world? We'll cover Hinduism, but I, I think you're going to be fo- interacting more with Roman Catholic Christians. Uh, I would say you know, word faith, probably, a lot of like, you know, Pentecostal Christians, uh, and you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna deal with a lot of Muslims, but you're not going to deal with a lot of other stuff. Buddhism, although we'll cover it, is a very strange religion because it's kind of like an attachment to a lot of other religions. Like people say, I'm Christian, but I do these Buddhist things, right? Like the Japanese are Shinto, but they're also Buddhist in a weird way. When I was in Japan and we did a tour, they were like, well, everyone's Shinto, Everyone believes in these nine million gods, because that's what it means. But all their graveyards are Buddhist because they have no structure to Shintoism. There's no structure to the religion. So they need some kind of structured religion to know how to deal with death and how to people moving on and reincarnation and stuff like that. So it's kind of interesting. One of the people that um, most people, I, you know, was one of those names that you could say, and now I'm wondering, like, do the kids know who Gandhi is? 
Have you ever <laughs> have you thought about that? Like, as time goes on, there's people that are like, do you know who, you know, you list names out? So I was, you know, I was thinking about Gandhi, and Gandhi, you know, was uh, by all rights a uh, kind, moral, very religious man, you know, very famous for a while when I was growing up, you know, um, you had a lot of those posters, those, you know, those like inspirational posters that have Gandhi on it and says, you know, be kind and stuff like that. And so I, I, I use him as an example uh, to think about this question. And this is the question that we're going to, in terms of apologetics, the one we're going to kind of interact with. And that's, well, don't all religions teach the same thing? These kinds of like ideas. You think about that coexist uh, bumper tag. I've seen it as a tattoo. You know, this idea that all religions teach the same thing. Is Jesus really the only way and what about those who have never heard? Those are kind of the core questions we want to ask when we're thinking about world religions. And that's something that I think got really popular around that time of like Gandhi, right? Where it was like, listen, I like, I, th- I forget what this, the ex- actual quote was, but it was something like, I like Christianity, but I don't like Christians or something like that because he thought Christians were mean. I like their Jesus Christ, I just don't like their Christians. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, if everyone didn't hear that, I like Jesus Christ, I don't like Christians, right? So uh, that's something that I think the world is, it's a very popular thing you hear in, in discourse, right? It's like, oh, well, Christianity, like Christ dined with prostitutes and sinners, and he was kind to everyone, and now you guys are being mean, and you're not really Christian. So uh, categories of religions, let's, let's just talk about the general idea here. I think this is in your notes. Uh, the idea that you would either have one God, monotheism, right? These religions include Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, right? They, they all share one worldview, that there's one God, a God that reveals himself, and that man is sinful. They just reach uh, different conclusions on how far that goes, right? It's kind of like Judaism came first, and Christianity was the, the, the new covenant and the, the completion of that, and then a guy came, you know, hundreds of years later and said, I have the DLC, for that and, you know, wanted to add something to it. But, you know, obviously was illiterate and didn't understand the earliest stuff enough to understand what we were saying when we talked about, say, the Trinity. Like, there's actually parts of the, of, uh, the Quran where it's very clear that uh, Muhammad thought that the Trinity was God, the Father, the Son, and the Virgin Mary, not the Holy Spirit, which is very weird. Uh, but it makes sense. If he was illiterate and he was hearing stories, he would hear about the Virgin Mary more than, say, the Holy Spirit, right? So, the next one. Polytheistic religions. This teaches that there are many gods. Hinduism, Eastern religions, New Age, uh, the Greeks, the Egyptians, um, Plato, uh, Platonists. What? Oh yeah, Mormonism is another one, right? Many gods. Uh, they're, they're, this is actually a bit more common, if you think about it. This is the most common kind of religions that there's there's a pantheon of gods of some sort, right? Nordic gods like Odin, or Greek gods, or Roman gods like Mars and Jupiter, right? So there's, there's pantheons of gods is the most common thing that we, I think that we do. And it makes sense because the Bible teaches this, right? It talks about how they turned away the glory of the immortal God for things that resembled fish and animals and people and mortal man, right? So the idea is that we like to create pantheons of gods and, and assign certain roles to certain aspects, so Christians do, uh, Christians and polytheists agree that there is a God, and we're not him, right? There's some kind of God outside of ourselves, and that's different in contrast to pantheism, which is this idea that 
all is God, God's in all, we all have a spark of the divine. That's very squishy, like new, new age, right? We all have like a peace inside of us. And that's stuff like um, Buddhism believes that, uh, classical and Zen, animism has that idea. I would say Shintoism to a degree has that as well. But once again, the question is, how many times are you going to interact with certain religions? So, But it's important to understand that this is, I think, a very... Um, I think you're going to see this a lot in the New Age, which is still kind of popular here uh, in America. Um, at least people will have uh, portions of this added in into their belief system. Um, some people believe in astrology. Certain people believe in, like, you know, crystals having magic or, pow- or power of some sort, right? It's like, it's, it's kind of a common idea. And that comes from this idea of that God's in all, and so every aspect, you know, you can resonate with that inside of yourself. So you have all these different kinds of categories, but you see how it goes from singular to multiple to, you know, now it's spread into everything. So the question is, let's go through, um, the question is like, what's truth, right? As we, as we interact with every single religion, we're, we're trying to figure out what the true religion is. So we're going to understand, we're, I broke this down by, say, facts about the religion, their beliefs, general agreements and disagreements, and then questions you can use to prompt a conversation about the gospel. That's the way I, I thought about it. Any questions so far? I know this is kind of just general overview so far. No? Okay. So the first one we want to talk about on your sheet is Islam. And this one, um, I think, is the, the one that we all have at kind of top of mind most of the time when we think about people we're going to interact with. Um, this one would be the most difficult because it's the most foreign to us. It's the one that we don't really understand uh, that well. Islam means submission to God, and the followers are called Muslims. And it's more than a, just a system of belief, right? The, the faith provides a social legal system, and it governs, governs things like family life, law and order, ethics, dress, cleanliness, religious ritual and observance. You know, the, that's something that we, as Americans, being so far removed from the founding of the nation, we've kind of gotten separated from, right? It's actually a very unique thing, if you think about it in the world, that a country would exist that wouldn't have an established religion of some sort, right? So there's a lot of Christian nations, if I want to call it that. Not that the people are all Christian, but it's ruled by a framework of Christianity. You see that with the crowning of, uh, is his name Charles? That's how out of touch I am. King Charles, right, when he first was crowned. You know, he's, he's standing there, there's clergy around him, and he's holding a scepter, which means I rule, and then like the goblet thing that's like the sign of the church, right? So he's like, I'm being crowned by God and man, essentially, right? So it's, it's something that is just baked into the pie of nations for the longest time until, you know, the aristocrats of the Americas says, hey, let's, let's do something a little bit different here. Let's, let's not have a national government religion, but every colony had its own established religion. That's, most people don't understand that, is that every single colony was either Presbyterian or Baptist or something like that. They, already, they all had their own established thing. They just didn't want a national government to tell them what to do. So when you think about tr- separation of church and state, th- well, yeah, in terms of the state being the national government, but not in terms of the colonies. They all, they all understood you need some kind of belief system, some kind of framework to uh, inform things like law and order, right, ethics, which ethics, think of that word as what you, should, what you ought to do, not what's acceptable, right? Because morality can change, right? Laws change all the time, right? You could, uh, 
I forget who was telling the joke, but, you know, they were saying like, oh, well, that's what the law says. And it's like, well, you know, men could beat women back in the day, and that's what the law said. They're perfectly acceptable to do that, right? But no, it's, it's obviously not right. It's an ought, right? The ethic is the ought of, of things. And without some kind of religious framework, you don't have an ought. So we have these two worldviews that clash, right? We have a framework in the Bible, the Old Testament, the New, saying how we ought to act. And then you have the Quran, which has a very similar set of rules, but a different ought, right? Different oughts, right? Women need to cover up in a certain way. That's the one we are most familiar with, right? The idea. Um, Arranged marriages, things like that. So there are over one billion Muslims globally, largely in the Middle East, Indonesia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and India. So, you know, very large religion. Uh, Founded in 622 by Muhammad, and the teaching is that he was the final messenger in whom Allah, which is what they call God, revealed the faith of the world. There had been earlier messages, according to them, like Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus, but Muhammad was the kind of the pinnacle of that. He was the final teacher. And he began to teach in Mecca, and then he settled in Medina, and by 632, so that's about 10 years, he had taken control of Mecca and most of the Arabian Peninsula by jihad, or a holy war. I mean, he basically submitted the entire world uh, if you think about that northern part of Africa, to uh, Islam. By the sword. sword. And the only reason he didn't go further was because there's this massive thing called the Sahara Desert, right, (laughs) that he couldn't cross. But I'm sure that he would go into South Africa if he could have. So God is called Allah, but the idea of an incarnate personal God is blasphemous and absurd to Islam. God is all-powerful and he created all things um, and is merciful and compassionate, God is judge, but there is no mediator. So it's kind of a contrast, right? He's powerful, created all things. He is merciful to a degree, but he's not personal. He doesn't talk to people individually. There's no mediator. Man is capable of sin, but he is also innately capable of pleasing God perfectly by his works. So the salvation, if we could call it that, is works-based. The pleasure of Allah are achieved by religious observance, and there's five pillars according to them. There's confession, and the confession is not like what we think of confession, like confession of sin. Just the confession that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the apostle of God. In fact, in order to become Muslim, that's all you have to say in Arabic is that. So it's interesting because you'll watch rituals and people will repeat this in order to become Muslim and they have no idea what they're saying. But you have to say it in Arabic. But if you say that, you've started, right? And then after that, you have a, a ritual prayer five times a day, fasting during Ramadan, which um, I had a guy working at my work who was actually Muslim. And the way he observed Ramadan was actually a dry fast. He didn't even drink water until the sun had gone down. It was brutal. I was like, oh, man, I'm sorry. We had cake because it was someone's birthday. He's just staying there politely. We're like, you want some cake? He's like, no. You want some water? No. I was like, oh, wow. Almsgiving to the poor, 2.5% of savings. And pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in their life. Um, so that's why you always see there's people there doing the spiral around uh, the, the Qibla is because they have to go there at least once in their life. Converting to Islam requires external action, specifically that you repeat this confession, and then you submit to all these other teachings. So now we are, in, so that's the beliefs. Now we're into the section of agreements and disagreements. So is the Bible God's words? And we talked about this in previous lessons, but the Muslims believe it was necessary for God to give another book, right, that the, that the Bible had been corrupted. And so if you go back to the lesson we talked about, uh, the reliability of the, of the New Testament, we have answers there. It's, it's too uh, big to answer now. But that is a contention that they have. What is the purpose 
of God's revelation. Well, Muslims believe that Islam includes both Judaism and Christianity and say that even Abraham was a Muslim. In their mind, everything is Islam. What we need to explain to the Muslim, and this is not an easy task, is that God desired to establish a personal relationship between himself and man. You see that in the Bible. You see God talking directly to his people, right? Even when you think about communally, he still talked to Moses and then had Moses to communicate that to others. Next question, did Jesus really die on a cross? We talked about this before too. Islam teaches that Jesus did not die on the cross. There is a verse in the Quran which says, they killed him not, they crucified him not, but it was likened unto them. They killed him not knowingly, but God raised him and God is the most merciful of merciful. So it's interpreted differently, but in the Muslim's mind, they think it was an illusion or that he swooned. He was on the cross, but then he didn't really die. He was just heavily wounded and somehow God sustained him and kept him alive. Because in their mind, and this is the same thing I think that Jewish people struggle with, is that how could God allow someone who's truly good to die such a horrible death, right? A curse on a tree. Obviously, they didn't read the rest of the Bible, right? We know that answer. But this is something that we have to contend with. They're going to deny that Jesus really died on the cross. So if you say Jesus died for your sin, they'll say, uh-uh. No, they did. he didn't, and then you're going to have to go into that issue. There's a lot of books that are really good on this topic. I would recommend James White's uh, 10 Things Every Christian Needs to Know About the Quran because he covers this uh, in detail and gives some strategies on how to deal with this. So what about the Trinity? Muslims often say the Christians believe in three different gods, God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, or like I said, there's a verse where it clearly seems to be uh, the mother of God. So they say this is blasphemy because one cannot believe in three different gods. So some questions for the, for the Muslim. How do you know if you're doing good enough deeds to receive salvation on the day of judgment? Right? This is the, I think this is the tactic with every work-based system, which is every system other than Christianity, right? Is the question of how do you know you're doing enough good? If your system is a works-based system, how do you know you're doing enough? Yes, Brother Michael. Oh, like numerology? Yes, very heavy. Hmm. Like, oh, this number appears X amount of time, the probability of that is whatever, whatever, therefore it's a mm-hmm. um, You know, numerology is something that I think that every religion falls into. He's just asking if no one heard his question that um, he was interacting with a Muslim and he was bringing up numerology and numbers repeating in, in the Quran. That's something that I think even Christians, we see certain aspects of that and we, I think we attach a lot of weight to it but um, I hesitate to do that. Like, for example, Christians will attach meaning to the number 40, right? Because you see 40 happening a lot of times, right? 40 years in the desert, 40 days and nights with Noah, uh, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, right? Like, the 40 pops up a lot. And so, although we can see there's some significance, and you can, I think you can acknowledge that, I think you would say uh, it's not uncommon when, you write, when stories are written for there to be significance with numbers. But more, I would say, let's say, what did Jesus really say, and what, did he, what happens if he actually said those things? And then bring them over to the statements of the I am statements of Jesus, his claim to be divine. I think that's a good transition way, because if he's talking about the word of God, you already have an opening. Just try to turn that conversation to be more about the Bible and with the words of Jesus, and then say, he says, no man can come to me unless he believes that I am the way, right? Truth and life. How can Christianity be a part of Islam 
when its teachings are so different. So here's another thing we can ask, right? Is here's the statements of Christianity, and here are your statements you're telling me. And even if you don't know what those are, as you ask and you have a conversation, they're going to bring up the differences between the two, and then you're going to say, okay, these are incompatible, so now we have to have a conversation about what is actually true and how do we know that. If you've studied reliability, you'll have some openings there, right? Reliability of the New Testament and how we got our scriptures versus how they got theirs. If you have that, you'll have that. But even if you don't have or can't remember any of that, the focus on grace versus works righteousness is always a way to start talking to a person about assurance. How do you know you're really saved? How do you know when you're, I think their soul is balanced against a feather? Can't remember exactly. But I think it's like when they, when they die, they're going to have some kind of a judgment. How do you know that you're going to be right with God? Any questions about Islam? No. It's a big topic. I'm like, ask any question about Islam. Yes. That's true. That's true. I mean, the same problem we have with Christians, right, where you may be growing up in a Christian uh, context, but you don't know the Bible at all because you haven't really read it. So Brother Christian was saying that there's a lot of different sects, just like Christianity. The two biggest sects are obviously Sunni and Shia. I think Sunni Muslims are the most common, and they're the ones that are usually the most, they're supposed to be the most conservative. So if you run into a Shia, uh, you're actually going to run into what we would call a liberal in a weird way. All right, this next one we're going to go, we're going to cover. We just have to keep moving on here. Um, and if, once again, if you have any questions, I have resources to suggest to you, uh, certain books that have helped me, but it's always, it's always something I think that you'd have to focus on a person you're talking to, a person you're evangelizing to, coming from a different worldview, and that's when you look for the resources, because now you actually have a, an interest, you have a way to, uh, to target what you're dealing with. Even asking questions like Brother Christian was talking about, what's your sect, what's the actual, uh, the specifics of your belief? Hinduism, which is pantheistic. This is the next one we're going to talk about. Hinduism is a, uh, I actually have worked with a couple of Indians, and it was very interesting because uh, one of the girls was telling me that she actually, is, she's from India, she's Hindu, but she went to Roman Catholic school. There's Roman Catholic schools out there. So she was very familiar with Christian beliefs, and she's kind of weirdly merged them together in this weird, crazy, uh, you know, mixture. But so Hindus will have some exposure to Christianity. Um, but I can say right now, at least the, the two that I interact with, they're like Brother Christian says. They're very, there's not, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of solid teaching from Hinduism at all. So some quick facts. There are a billion Hindus in the world, most of whom are in India, but uh, obviously a lot of, um, the United States uh, has a lot of immigrants from India because they tend to be highly trained like doctors and things like that. Uh, we have a lot of architects that are, that are Indian. So Hindu, Hinduism arose uh, 3,500 years ago. Uh, that's when they can trace it. It's about 1500 BC, after the conquering of the Indian subcontinent. But there's no clear specific founder or starting point. And it doesn't even have the same focus on truth as a, a, other religions do. It seems more of like just history. Oh, there were these gods. They settled here. They formed these aspects uh, of life, you know, some kind of animism. Um, and then the cultures kind of sprung up around the, the foundations that these uh, godlike creatures created. 
But there's no single Hindu idea of God. There's Brahman, who is the absolute one, um, but it's impersonal, it's an all-embracing spirit, and there's many lesser deities. You could say the one God among many gods. And once again, it's works-based. It's the practices, the belief that all souls are eternal and accountable for their own actions. Karma is the debt of one's bad actions, which you must atone for, so that every soul is trapped in the cycle of birth and then death and then rebirth. And karma is not the same thing as judgment in Christianity. It is automatic, it is impersonal, and it is reoccurring. It's just something that happens. Um, there's actually a very interesting uh, movie I watched. I was on a, a flight to China, and there was this Korean film, and I watched it, and it was wild to me because I always thought that reincarnation was something that just happens, right? You die, the next moment you're a baby, right? Just, you're, or, you know, if you had a bad life, right? You're like some kind of dog or something, you know, because there's a, there's a sense in which you, you uh, cycle into it based on good and bad actions. You become like a lesser being if you're bad, and you become a higher being if you're good. Uh, and in this movie, uh, this guy, he dies, but he dies saving a child from a burning building, right? He's this, do you know which one I'm talking about, Wally? Yeah, I think it's called Among the Gods or Along the Gods or something like that. It's a great action movie. But he dies, and then he goes to Buddhist hell. And there's these horrible things that are happening in order to, like, punish you for the sins that you've done and stuff. And I was like, this, is, this isn't reincarnation. I had no, belie- I had no idea. It was, it was wild. So it was one of those things where I think that we think we have a version of that Hollywood has put out, that, you know, shysters have, you know, you know, new age people that they talk about reincarnation. But the actual beliefs of Hindu and Buddhism is pretty, pretty wild, which Buddhism sprung from uh, this region as well. Um, Zen Buddhism, there was a guy from Japan that went to, to India and said, oh, this is a cool religion, and brought it back, and then it became its own thing. So uh, it all came from the same area, the same idea of karma, reincarnation, rebirth, and their ultimate aim is to escape this cycle together by attaining uh, liberation. There's a, an Indian word, masksha. So when someone dies, their soul is reborn into a new body, and that's called reincarnation, but they're trying to escape this path. And it's different from Hinduism versus Buddhism, but it's the same kind of idea. So that's the beliefs, the general beliefs. Agreements and disagreements. So the question we could ask is, does history matter? Right? The Christian view of history is extremely different than um, Hinduism. Christians believe that God created the world at one point, and it, there's a linear progression, right? God's doing stuff, he's doing stuff, and more revelation is happening, and time is going on. But a lot of Eastern religions has this idea of a circle, or things rein, reincarnate, and it cycles, and it's always a cycle, right? So um, if there's this cycle, then really the Hindu teaching is meaningless because there's nothing you can do. It's going to cycle again. Things are going to reincarnate. Things are going to start again in the same way. Whereas with uh, Christianity, you have this beginning, you have this end. So you have this end point which we're looking towards, which we're saying, you're going to die and you're going to have an end point. You're going to meet your creator and you're going to have to answer for your sin. How are you going to deal with that? How are you going to be right with God? The other question is, what is God like? You know, for the Hindus, there's no personal God. There's no, uh, it's all impersonal force right? It's, it's just a manifestation of these uh, animistic uh, elements and things like that. But the question is, and as Christians, we believe this, that the reason why we have the ability to talk and to communicate, and we have emotions, and we love, is because those are communicated to us by, from God, right? Communicable attributes. 
And so we are like God. We are made in the image of God in order to be able to do those things, right? That's why dogs don't do that. You don't have dog courthouse, the doggy judge, right? Like saying, how dare you go in my yard, right? That's my property. No, it's, it's obviously we have, a, we have an, idea, an understanding of truth and object, uh, like objective justice and things like that. And so in the same way, we understand by our own experiences that God is personal, right? Because we're personal. Without us being personal, it would, it would make any sense. Next question, are there consequences for our actions? And we agree to a degree that there's consequences. But in, in some way, I, I, it's almost like Hinduism and Buddhism is very fatalistic, right? Because it doesn't really matter what you do. If you have a certain amount of bad deeds, you're going to have to pay for them. There's no atonement. There's no way you can work more ways to, to get good. So as, uh, but we should be clear that we believe in a deeper vision of sin and consequences because they say, yeah, it's going to be bad when I go to hell and have that worked out of me, but then I'll be reincarnated and try again. It's like, there's no redo, right? There's no try again. There's no extra life, right? It's, uh, it's, it's something that is permanent. And that's something for, I think if a person is religious, that is something they're going to want to hear about. That's something that they're going to meditate about themselves. But the biggest question, and this is the question I think that everyone has to ask, I put this at the top of your bulletin, is everything always boils down to, who is Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? How do you think about Jesus? They may have heard about him, they may have not. But if you describe him as not just some good teacher, but rather he is God. He is the divine manifestation. And he's more special than anything else. You can, you can kind of say, you have this impersonal God named Brahman, but God is not like that. He is Jesus. He is personal. He became man so that he could be among us. So, um, any questions about Hinduism? Once again, another big topic. No? Okay. So we talked a little bit about Buddhism because they kind of intertwine. But Buddhists, like I said, are, are very interesting because although they are predominantly in China, Tibet, and East Asia, um, there's quite a few temples actually around town if you look around. There's, there's quite a few uh, Buddhists here. Um, I've noticed that a lot of Vietnamese are Buddhist. I think like 99% are Buddhist. So every time I meet a Vietnamese person, I'll, I'll talk to them and they're Buddhist. I went and saw some houses that were owned by a Vietnamese couple and they had little shrines and stuff. So uh, it is something that you might run into here, both in its light form, the one where people attach to it. Well, I like to do yoga and I meditate and stuff. That's the easy Christian, uh, or not Christian, but American Buddhism, right? Um, they'll say they're Christian, but then they attach Buddhist stuff like meditation to it. And then there's true Buddhists, the ones that actually believe um, that the, like, the core teachings of Buddhism, which uh, it's, it's hard to describe without getting too deep into it. But the summary that I thought of was Buddhism is very much like the force in Star Wars, to use a, a crude example, right? It's like it's impersonal, but it it's can be manipulated. It's all around us. It's in us. Um, and so if you think about it that way, there's no God. In fact, some Buddhists will say that they're atheists in a way. They don't believe in a God at all. They believe in a, a personal force, a force that animates us and moves us around. And they believe in karma, or this idea of birth and, and rebirth. But they, believe, they also teach that the material plane is an illusion. It's something that is not really real. And so they teach something called the Four Noble Truths. Number one, to live is to suffer. Two, suffering is caused by desire. Three, one can eliminate suffering by elimination of desire. 
and desire is eliminated by following the Eightfold Path. This Eightfold Path is this idea that you're trying to perfect eight aspects of your human nature. And after, through a, a multiple cycle of death and rebirth, we're like, oh, I didn't master path one. Okay, my fifth life, I've mastered path one, great. Okay, sixth life, I'm gonna work on two, and then two might take 10 more lives, right? And, and then after you've mastered all eight paths, and you've reincarnated probably as you know, the Dalai Lama or someone, right, who's super good, then when you die, you will cease to exist. You'll become nirvana. You'll enter into this nirvana and you're, you won't have to be reincarnated anymore. You'll have escaped the cycle of suffering. You've eliminated all desire, you've perfected yourself, and now you become part of the force. And maybe you can become a force ghost. You know, you kind of manifest if you need to, but you're in this like jelly of like the force. I'm using some crude examples, but it's like, it's, you have to understand that that's what they really believe. Now, in the same way, when I've talked about this with uh, a coworker who's Buddhist, she didn't know this stuff. Same problem with nominalism, right? They just said, oh, I'm just trying to make myself perf perfect, you know, perfect. And it's like, okay, well, do you really think this is the end goal? And she thought about it and she said, yeah, I mean, I guess that makes sense to me. I'm like, so you're trying to escape life? You're just trying to escape the, the suffering of this world by becoming nothing? Um, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's almost like I, I kind of reached a dead end in my evangelism. <laughs> I was like, I was just lost. I didn't know what to do. I said, oh, okay, well, that's not true. <laughs> and then we had a conversation about Jesus, which she had some experience with that as well. But, um, you know, rejected it, of course, uh, because she's an older lady, and I think that it becomes harder the, the longer that you're committed to this, especially if your family's all Buddhist and things like that. So agreements and disagreements. Buddhists would say Jesus is another teacher uh, leading, leading people to this enlightenment, like kind of like another Buddha. Um, I haven't encountered that, but um, I have heard that that's something that they'll, they'll say. If they have to try to like meld their religion with other religions, they'll say, okay, all the people from various religions are just uh, like Buddha, and they're all just trying to lead people to this enlightenment, this, this nirvana where they escape the cycle of suffering. So Buddhists get the description um, half right when it comes to man. They agree that they're suffering. We all agree that they're suffering. They don't disagree with that. I think that's why that's, um, I would say, attractive about it, is because it's one of the religions that just takes that problem of evil head on. Says, yeah, you see suffering around you? That's right, life is suffering. Suffering because we're material right now, and material stuff is bad, and that's why we, we suffer with this. And where does it come from? It comes from a desire. That's also something that Christians would agree with, right? It says that sin takes root when our desires for something, right? So when we desire something, sinfully, then sin takes roots and that gives, uh, we actually then actually act out on that sin. So the problem is we desire to rule our own lives. We don't desire to submit to God's rule. They say the desire must be eliminated. Christians say it has to be transformed, right? We no longer desire selfish and sinful things. We hunger and thirst for righteousness is the way that the Bible talks about living water, right? Living bread. So who really is God? We need to speak with Buddhists about the fact that God of the Bible is all-powerful, imminent, which means he's here, he's not extant or out there somewhere, and he's knowable. He wants to be in a relationship with his people. That's the reason why we have the Bible, right? If you think about it, God's so much higher than us, how will we ever understand the mind of God unless he somehow communicated it to us in such a way that we could understand it? So he's not a God of only of uh, magical powers, right, in, in the way that they think of it, but he has a personal name and personal powers he uses for good. So, questions. Buddhism is right that there's nothing on earth that permanently exists. 
But what if I told you there was a world with God that would exist forever, right? We're not trying to escape it. We're trying to perfect the world, if that makes sense. Not us ourselves, but we're waiting for God to remake the world and to, make, and to remove sin and to give us resurrected bodies, right? On his deathbed, Buddha said, I remind you that all things are impermanent. I advise you to take refuge in yourselves and the teachings. Everything that is born is subject to decay. There is no external savior. It is up to each of you to work out your own liberation. So how can a Buddhist be saved from meaninglessness? To a degree, why even, why even struggle against meaninglessness? And the last one, denying desire denies the desire to enjoy friendship and family, work and play, recreation and exploration. Does not a Buddhist not desire these things? Don't they understand there's a difference between desire that brings about pain and suffering and desire that is actually good? Your love for your family, your desire to take care of them, right? Spend time with them. If they can't deny that, then it's something that you can create a contradiction in even their belief system and say, okay, obviously there are good desires and bad desires. Let's talk about what God wants us to desire versus um, trying to eliminate it and be stoic or something like that. Any questions on that aspect? Sheila. Do you know what they would say as far as the Eightfold Path? Where does the right come from? Um, like perfection? Well, they say that they need to have the right view, the right intention, right speech, etc. Mm-hmm. Where does right? That's a good question. She was asking how do they know, because um, it's, it's right speech, right, uh, right attitude, um, I think it's patience too, right thought, yeah. I can't remember exactly the Eightfold Path, but you're right, like they, they use this term right, which is objective, right? It's some, this idea of right and wrong, how to be correct, how to be the right way, and you're right, if there's no God, how would they do that? Maybe they feel the force, I don't know. It's a good question. I think that that's something we can bring up, right? To say, how do you, do you just try to see if you, you feel right when you're doing it? You know, that's a good question. And if it out, and then if it exists starts our outside of ourselves. Oh, great. I must have looked it up then. Yes. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, exactly. Well, eventually you'll die, and you'll become a baby with no desire, right? And then you'll probably die from not drinking milk because you won't have any desires. <laughs> Since there's no uh, like kind of omnipotent God mm-hmm. in Buddhism, do they believe in any kind of like spiritual forces at all? Is there something that like governs this process of reincarnation and good and bad and all of these things? And so like they, they deny any kind of spirits at all, or is it just they deny that there's a superpower of God? Right, so Michael was asking if there, since there's no omnipotent God, how do they, how do they know, reincar- how is reincarnation guided? And uh, as, like I said, I've only, I only have about three people in my life that have these beliefs, but they're all kind of inconsistent, so I can't ask them directly. But when I was doing the research for all these, it seems like it really is like the Force. So, you know, it's the, the Force creates the, the light side Jedi that's going to oppose the dark side Jedi and stuff like that. It, it, the, it kind of somehow, because it's impersonal, somehow selects and balances the, the world. You know, you see the, the um, escaping me now, the symbol. Uh, no, the, it's like, it's white and black together and there's a dot. 
Ying Yang, yeah, thank you. Uh, so you know how there's that and it's balanced and there's a dot of dark in the white and there's a dot of white in the dark. And the idea is that we're all a mixture and we're made up of predominantly good, but you still have a little evil inside of you. Predominantly evil, you still have a little good inside of you, right? That's why like, you know, there's always this, there's still this idea of redemption in those stories in a weird way is because it's like, oh, well, there's still that little bit of good that we can hold on to in that person and bring them over into the light side, right? So, uh, yeah, to answer your question, it is impersonal still, and it's, it's, it's not really defined. It's not something that, when we think about Christianity, one of the amazing things that's really nice is that even though it's difficult, there's actually a lot of explanation in the Bible. When you go through it, there's a lot of depth there. It actually explains mechanically how certain things work and the justice of God in a court case example, and there's all of these ways for us to understand it. But a lot of other religious texts aren't long, and they're very nebulous. They don't have a lot of clear understanding of where it comes from. Right, judgment at the end. Judgment's impersonal. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's some kind of unknowable judgment. There's no standard or law. You just kind of have to cross your fingers and hope that it works out for the best. So um, next one, um, and this, this, I want to get through this before we, uh, we close up here. The questions that I want to ask were those ones I asked in the beginning, and that's, don't all religions teach the same thing? Is Jesus the only way? And what about those who have never heard? Because although, like I said, we might interact with various world religions, so many people that I've interacted with don't really understand their own religions. They're nominal. They've grown up this way, right? They've grown up Hindu, or they've grown up Roman Catholic, or they've grown up Buddhist. But they don't really have that understanding that we desire to have of our own religion, right? We want to know how God interacts with people, what he desires from us. How do we live a righteous life before God? How do we bring him glory? How do I evangelize to my neighbor? There's not a lot of that in other religions because it's not important for them to evangelize. If you think about it, right? If you're Hindu, you're just a Hindu nation. You grow up and you're Hindu. And you ever had a person say, you need to convert to Hinduism or you need to convert to Buddhism. They might say it might help your life, but there's not a, a desire because there's no judgment like Brother Christian said. There's no, um, des- there's no uh, oomph for, I don't know the word for it, but there's, no, there's nothing pushing them to do that. Impetus, that's a good word. Do all religions teach the same thing? After spending a few minutes contrasting Christianity with Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism, you may find it hard to believe that people still assert that all the religions teach the same thing. It's, it's like, well, clearly, as we've talked, we don't teach the same thing. But for a lot of people that are not um, familiar with this, they simply just see the overall picture that people want to be good, and there's various systems to make you good, right? So they make different claims, but they have to be all teaching the same thing because all of the people I know that are strongly adhered to certain religions tend to be nice, right? This is the idea. But when you get down to it, no, they don't because when we're talking about it, there's a, a huge difference between world religions, which we're talking about, which is work your way to God in whatever system you find yourself in. And Christianity, it says no one can work their way to God Everyone's sin separates them from God, and the only way that we can become united and in a relationship is if our sin is paid for, and we can't do that ourselves, right? That's something that is totally 180 degrees different than any other, any other religion. They all boil down to works-based righteousness, but here we have a religion in Christianity that says, you can't do it, God had to do it for you. He had to become a man and do everything, right? At the end of Romans, uh, or I should say at the beginning of Romans 8, Let's turn there real quick, because I don't think I have this in your notes. 
It's in Romans 8, and it's in verse, uh, let's start in 28, because that's one everyone knows, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I just re- uh, quote that in your hearing to point out the fact that God's doing all of those things. There's no people in those. There's God acting in every single one of those aspects. God has to do it. We accept that by faith. But even faith is a gift. We don't do anything. We're n- there's nothing in us that's special that God called us. In fact, we are not the most lovely. We were not the most wise right? And if you look around, you'll see that people are from every aspect of life to the glory of God, right? Even with Israel, he said, I did not pick you because you were the greatest. I picked you because you were the worst. <laughs> I told that to someone, a coworker recently. He's like, wow, I don't believe in that God. I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. He's like, that's just mean. He's saying, oh, I didn't pick you because you're great. And it's like, and then we had a conversation about how, no, it's not something inside of ourselves. God doesn't look down the quarters of time and see you being good in the future. He loves you even though you're unlovable, it's an amazing, it's hard to understand. It's, it's totally, if I can use the word alien to us, right? He is, he is other in that aspect. He is so holy. He is so set apart. We can't even understand how he could love someone who's so horrible. Amen. Next question. Is Jesus the only way? Yes. <laughs> so is Jesus the only way to know God, to be forgiven and saved, and to enjoy eternal life with God? The answer is yes. Isaiah 45, 21. There is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. And of course, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And this is a hard truth for many, of, for many people, many of our friends. It's a hard truth for people to hear in a postmodern culture. But we have to say it biblically. If you want to say it winsomely, um, we have to say that. We can't shy away from it. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So I pointed this out before. Paul wouldn't say he's not ashamed unless they were trying to shame him, unless to a degree people were trying to get him to stop talking about it. It's shameful what you're saying. But he says, no, the salvation that I'm talking about is for all men, and it is a gospel that has been revealed by God, that you have to have faith. So as Christians, what are the charges we need to be prepared to respond to when we say Jesus is the only way to God? Well, that claiming Jesus is the only way is arrogant, right? That's the one that we most say. It's like, how dare you um, say that? Um, the only, the, the way to to respond to this is just to return to simple logic. It's not possible for all world religions to be valid, right? Um, there is only one way, if you, especially when you talk about the contradictions. We're trying to search for truth, and I would even use Jesus' own words from John 14, 6 and John 17. They themselves, you could just open up a Bible and read it, right? It's not something I'm asserting. These are the words of Jesus. You can't say Jesus is a good teacher and say that he's arrogant if he's asserting himself that he is the only way. Number two, Jesus cannot be the only way because other religions would be false. Yes, this is what I'm saying, right? And this is a difficult thing, I think, that I interact with my own family members because they'll have people that they know that are um, 
you know, in another religion, they say, well, if what you're saying is true, this means my best friend or my family member is going to hell. The only way I've, I've, well, I shouldn't say the only way, but the way I found works for me is just to sidebar that and say, we'll talk about that later, but let's talk about you right now. Because it doesn't matter about those other people. We can go talk to them, <laughs> right? But we need to talk about your relationship with God right now. Don't let that kind of divert your, your gospel presentation. And that people will say, all that really matters is that people sincerely seek God. I'm sure you've heard this too, right? Well, if you're really trying, if your heart's in the right place, doesn't God take that into account? Doesn't he say, okay, good enough? But this is the, this is the difficult thing about uh, Christianity that it's hard to get this across, at least in my experience, is that good intentions don't mean anything. We all, we all claim that, right? We all, we all had good intentions. But really, at the end of the day, it's what happens, right, that, that matters, the actions of people, right? Um, intentions might matter for when you're a child, but that starts to diminish rapidly <laughs> as you get older, right? At the end of the day, um, the question is not what you say you felt like or you say you wanted to do. Did you actually desire truth? Did you actually seek out the reality? So last thing before we close. What about those who have never heard the good news? And there's a lot to say about this. And since I'm going to run out of time, um, if you want this last part in detail, because there's about two pages here, um, ask me. But we're going to go over it rapid fire. And that's that. The Bible has this to say about that. All humankind is already under judges, God's judgment because all men and women are sinful, morally accountable God, and must give an answer to him. It's irrefutable. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that's another true statement. So there is hope, even though that's true. Scripture is full of examples of men and women who trust God in faith with incomplete information, yet are saved. So it's not a matter of having to do it perfectly. It's a matter of hearing the gospel and responding to it. And so there are people that have not heard, but that's why it's so imperative for us to send missionaries into places where they haven't heard, right? And even if those missionaries don't do it perfectly, God uses imperfect means to accomplish his perfect means. So there's hope at least, because without, uh, if, you know, if, with what the Bible says, I think people say, well, I don't want to go, I don't want to talk to my neighbors, I don't want to talk to my friends, because what if I do it imperfectly? And the last thing I would say and I would leave you with is just as a person's going a million miles away, is there a million miles on the globe? A thousand miles away <laughs> to talk to people in Africa or people in, in the Amazon forest, you don't have to go that far. There are plenty of people you probably know, right? We talked about how evangelical Christians are only 6%, right? There are plenty of people you know that don't know the gospel. And those are people that need to hear because if they never hear or if they reject the gospel and they die, they will go to hell. And that's something that should really prick our hearts. And we should say, you know what? I'm just committed to talking to this person even if I do it imperfectly. And I pray that God will use whatever I say to start a conversation in their mind or, or thought and then guide other Christians to talk to them and reinforce that. All right, um, we're out of time. So if you have any other questions, uh, please ask me afterwards. Our, last, our next class next time will just be really the collection of questions I've gotten up to this point and, and talking about gospel encounters and people you've interacted with that you want advice on. All right, I thank you, God, again, for this, uh, this lesson. Uh, it's a lot of information. It's definitely trying to drink from a fire hose. And I pray, Father, that you would help cement the information that people need in their minds. If they know people of various religions, I pray that I've given them something to, to bounce off of or to think about so that they can start talking to those people about the gospel. 
Lord, give us the tools, give us the conversations, and give us boldness and courage to talk to people we care about and we love about, even if we ourselves are imperfect, and even if our words are imperfect. I pray that you use everything for your glory and your good. Thank you again. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' names, amen.